Hello and welcome to ITIC Insight, the podcast which shares loss prevention advice from ITIC, the world's leading provider of professional indemnity insurance for transport professionals everywhere. Well, welcome everybody to next in the podcast series from ITIC. Today, I'm joined by Daryl Kennard, who's a partner at uh, Pennington Manches and Cooper. He's a marine trade and energy lawyer, and he's going to be joining me today to discuss something that is is um, well known in the marine and energy sector, which is knock-for-knock liability. It's well known, but I think there are some common misconceptions or misunderstandings about it. So we're just going to have a 15-minute chat about knock-for-knock liability and its use in the industry, the benefits, what contracts it's suitable for, and uh, what you as a member of ITIC should be wary of when when you're agreeing to these type of clauses. Now, knock-for-knock liability, I guess, is the the common phrase for it would be um, your property, your people, your problem my property, my people, my problem. So basically each side takes uh, liability for their own people and, and property. And doing some research on this topic, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of good resources from uh, other clubs. For example, ship owners have a very good page on, um, on knock-for-knock liability and also um, schooled as well. The basic history of knock-for-knock is uh, it, it comes out of the uh, US motor industry where it was found that the you know, months were, were spent assessing liability which had a detriment to actually paying out the claim. So the uh, US car insurers came to agreement that they'd have a knock-for-knock liability to speed up claim payments. So that's a, a little bit of background onto the history. So thanks very much, Daryl, for, for joining me. And, and, I, and I think you were saying when we had a chat before the podcast that you do see this as a contract requirement for your clients and, and have given some advice on it before. So I guess, firstly, first question, what, what are the benefits of knock-for-knock liability? I mean, why, why isn't it used? Thank you, Robert, and good day. I think, uh, firstly, it's just worth focusing on what a a knock-for-knock is. And as you said, your people, your property, your problem. Uh, But it's a clause which apportions liability to each contracting party for its own craft, equipment and personnel, including where loss and damage is suffered by such craft, equipment and personnel, where there's uh, negligence by one or the other parties. And it's very much an insurance-driven solution to avoid lawyers having to get involved. So the immediate benefit is there's clarity following any incident causing loss and damage as to where legal responsibility under the contract lies. It lies on the party who suffers the loss and you've both agreed with each other you won't bring any claims for that loss against the other where the loss relates to craft, equipment and personnel. Of course, if you don't have to engage lawyers to assess legal liability, then you don't have to pay lawyers. And that is a a huge benefit. I suspect that was one of the driving forces behind the knock-for-knock being developed in the US in relation to motor insurance claims. And there's another, I think, quite important benefit of not having to engage lawyers other than not having to pay their legal fees. You don't need your claims manager or your senior management to have to spend time dealing with the lawyers, budgeting, looking at the evidence and generally being involved in the claim. And absent a knock-for-knock clause, these claims could last two, three, possibly even four years. So there's an enormous saving in management time by having a knock-for-knock clause, a pure knock-for-knock clause in your agreement. So so I guess that speeds up 
contractual negotiation. So if, as you say, with certainty. So if, if, if you know your agreement is on a, a knock-for-knock basis, you, you know basically what you're going to get. And so when you're, so I guess, when you're purchasing your insurance, you're not going to be doubly up on, on your insurance pay liability claims. So I guess it's a speed of negotiations and certainty, like you're saying. Uh, that, that, that's exactly right. I think it's just, you've got to just change your mindset. When something goes wrong, you're going to look to your insurer to cover the loss. The other party will look to its insurers to cover its loss. And you won't look to each other and say so you don't need to, so your liability insurers who cover your third-party liability risks will have written the premium at a much lower rate because if you have a pure knock-for-knock, their liability ought to be really quite marginal and it's only those cases that slip through the gaps that will engage their cover. So you've just got to change your mindset from, well, who got this wrong and I'm going to hold them responsible to something went wrong, so I'll look to my insurer to cover my personal loss. I think as well, one of the other benefits of a, um, a knock-for-knock is you have a you can have a freer flow of information between the two contracting parties to try and understand what went wrong and how safety standards may be improved going forwards in the future. There's a slight caveat to that, of course, that if you have a health and safety executive inquiry or a, a Marine and Coast Guard MCA inquiry into the incident and the possibility of criminal charges following, then you may well want to be engaged lawyers and have a more guarded approach. But if it's a, if it's a kind of low-level uh, run-of-the-mill incident, which has caused physical loss but no loss of life, and there's no involvement by the local authority, but, but then, then you can sit down both both sides say well this is what we did this is what you did this is where it went wrong let's have something in place to ensure that doesn't happen in the future because accidents in life are inevitable and safety standards can always be improved it's a continual uh, evolution so i guess i guess that's why it's so prevalent in the offshore oil and gas sector because safety standards are are crucial so like the pipe the piper alpha scenario which the litigation did continue for a long long time Absolutely. I think there are two reasons why it's particularly favoured in the offshore industry. One is because they're always striving to improve safety standards. And two, because the the value of the equipment involved is sometimes very great. And so if you're bringing an offshore vessel uh, alongside a rig and you cause damage to the rig and you didn't have a knock for knock, you might find that the liability on you is quite enormous. Ultimately, we all know that these claims all find their way back into the insurance market anyway. So it's, if you like, a pragmatic way forward for the insurance market to say, well, rather than having these cross claims, let's just absorb them. Insurers will be reinsured. So they may all find that the claims may find themselves all settling down where they would end up lying. But, but you involve that initial inquiry and legal expense. That's great. So... Is it suitable for all circumstances? Because what we see at ITIC is sometimes when you have a, an oil and gas player move into maybe a different sector, maybe they're engaging ship managers, they'll have the same sort of contractual sort of uh, mindset and they'll sort of demand that uh, not for not liability be in all their other agreements. From what I see from ship management, I'm, I'm not so sure it is suitable. So I, I, I'm wondering what you what your thoughts are on that. I, 
I don't think it is suitable for all contracts. I think it's fundamentally designed to cover contracts which involve some sort of operational performance in the field, if you like, at sea or whatever, where both parties, in order to perform that operation, are using their own craft, equipment and personnel. So you have an operation, any operation has inherent risks of something going wrong. And whenever something goes wrong, you can have loss and damage to life. But it's quite different from, say, a ship management agreement, which might more fundamentally involve the provision of services, but not operate. But, but there's no operation going on. It's just the provision of ongoing services. In those circumstances, it's difficult to see how it would really work. It wouldn't be very coherent because the ship manager is probably not going in the field in that sense, nor is he risking any equipment or craft. So it doesn't. It, there's no mutuality of, uh, of release of uh, liability for, for claims. So I think that's certainly one context that it doesn't work very well in uh, and w- would probably be a little bit meaningless, to be honest. Well, we, we do see it. And then one of the, the main issues that I, I have with it is that a ship manager is relying upon the owner's insurance. So he'll be a co-assured under the P&I and the hull. So it basically he 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 be putting a liability back onto the owner for the losses because if the crew are employed by the manager which they they often are it's, it's a circular thing that doesn't work when you're relying upon the other party's insurance to cover the claims yeah i think that's right i think that's a good observation i also think it's of course you have a express waiver of negligence in a in a knock for knock provision it's relating to loss and damage to craft and personnel but whenever you have a waiver of negligence in a in a contract which is involving the provision of services with reasonable care and skill there's an immediate tension and i think you can bet that lawyers will try and take that waiver of negligence as absolving the ship manager from his ordinary duties mm-hmm. um, depending on how the contract's been put together so it's a dangerous thing i think just to have a, a clause that doesn't really work at all in a in 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 such a contract i think Sorry. No, I was just going to say uh, on that one, when we're asked to review these contracts by members and uh, actually for, from a PI perspective, it, it's not, not, a, not a bad thing because you're, much of the liability that we see is through physical uh, loss and damage. But it, it does, what we say to, to members, it, it impinges on the recovery rights of other insurers that may be part of your group insurance policy. So, for example, if you've got an employer's liability cover or property insurance cover, they're effectively waiving the rights of recourse of those other insurers. So there's one thing getting advice from ITIC, but they also need to seek approval from their other insurers for the clauses as well. Yes, and of course, those other insurers may not be familiar with knock for knock and how it works if it's not a clause that's ordinarily in those types of contracts. Uh, And so it will it will potentially cause some issues with your insurance. I think the other type of contract, I've never seen it in this context, but but it's worth mentioning is it would be pretty incoherent to incorporate it into a salvage contract where the remuneration is to be assessed under Article 13 of the Salvage Convention, you know, having regard to the dangers, reasonable care and skill, etc, etc. I don't see how it would work at all there because it's you're taking out a chunk of the bit that the remuneration is assessed on you know you're exposing your craft to danger in salving a vessel and yet you're not going to be liable for that for that for that loss so it it, it doesn't work in that context but to be fair i don't think it's often been put in that but but you you uh, instead see emergency rescue contracts being done on supply time and tow hire then of course it's perfectly proper to have it in those contracts Mm. okay thank you for that so 
Next question, Zoe. What uh, what should our members be wary of? And I think I highlighted already the um, to you that uh, the one thing that we, we see is, is a big uh, quite onerous is obviously not not for knock as a um, as a well known and split split of liability, but it's where I think the one the contractual parties tries to put in carve outs. So I think do you, do you see those for your client? Yeah, I think I think. The main thing they should be wary of, uh, and I think anything that I'm going to mention here is, a, is, is, is just a species of this, is, is making any amendments to the knock-for-knock knock clause. Uh, if, you, if you're using a supply time or tow hire or a standard knock-for-knock knock clause, that's been drafted carefully, uh, and those clauses have been reviewed by the court. Uh, they've been construed by the court, and they have a clear meaning. And that clear meaning means there's no room for lawyers to argue that they, they mean otherwise. As soon as you start changing the terms of the knock for knock you you are you're immediately introducing the question well what was the amendment intended to mean how were you intended to change the regime that you had there before and that will involve a question of construction two lawyers can look at the same thing and come to different conclusion just as two judges can look at the same thing and come to different conclusion and we've seen uh, certainly in the last five years Quite a number of con, uh, pure legal construction issues go all the way up to the Supreme Court with different judges having different views on, on the same wording. So you're introducing that uncertainty. Uncertainty means legal costs and a lot of time and trouble. I think specifically the amendments that are, more, that are, that are commonly seen are the reversal of the negligence provision, for example. So in a knock-for-knock, knock, both parties agree to absorb its own losses for its craft, personnel and equipment. And the clause makes it abundantly clear it's in all circumstances, including where one party has caused the incident by reason of its negligence. And sometimes you see the words, even if caused by negligence, change to unless caused by negligence. So in other words, then you're saying, well, the not for not works unless the loss or the incident has been caused by one party's negligence. But bearing in mind that there's probably an implied term of reasonable care and skill in the contract anyway, that's making just a little bit of a nonsense of the knock-for-knock and probably rendering it redundant. Because if you can establish negligence, then you have a claim. If you can't establish negligence, even if you don't have a knock-for-knock, you're not going to have a claim anyway. So that's certainly one area to be particularly wary of. And and I think that's the amendment that just ups, upsets the whole apple cart because the insurance industry is very pro the knock-for-knock agreements. And all of a sudden, you're undermining the whole system by, by just that simple amendment. Yeah, and, I, and I, um, I've seen, uh, we're again, a, sh- a ship manager of uh, being asked to manage an FPSO from a principal who was more used to working in the offshore or in the gas sector, asking for knock-for-knock liability in the management agreement, but then having a carve-out for third-party claims, which arise from the management agreement, which is just, we just said, don't yeah. you know, walk, walk away from this if you could be agreeing to su- su- such a thing, because it's you know, obviously third-party liability claims from an FPSO would be huge. Yeah, and so, so there's, there's that. There's also amending the reference to negligence to gross negligence. Gross negligence is a is, a, is not a concept that's recognisable under English law. You're either negligent or you're not negligent. So to introduce the concept of gross negligence, uh, of course, is, I think, in a layman's mind, trying to, to, to introduce something that is particularly serious 
particularly serious negligent conduct. Well, if you introduce that, if that was how it would be viewed under English law, then you're you're giving the lawyers a field day because there's probably negligent for the for the incident to have occurred. Often there is, and then there'll be an argument about whether this was ordinary negligence or serious negligence. And nobody's going to know where the line is divided. But in any event, the English court doesn't really make that distinction, so it's not a meaningful amendment. And I think related to that, often you will see the a carve out for willful misconduct. Willful misconduct, of course, probably does have a meaning under English law and, and it means deliberate to some degree. But that conduct is as rare as hen's teeth, hardly ever going to occur. And so it seems odd that contracting parties would wish to include a carve out for conduct that in truth is not going to occur. And so it's, it, again, it's just not that you think you're striking a a balance in the contract that your insurers would approve of. But I think most insurers would rather you just stick with the pure knock-for-knock agreement because they know exactly where they are. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, and on that, actually, on the point of sort of what you're saying about the UK courts being very familiar with knock-for-knock liability, I, I was, again, doing some research on this piece, look, looking at the Schools website, and they've got a very good page on the uh, the applicability of the knock-for-knock regime in different jurisdictions. So it's definitely something that should be considered when agreeing to this, what what what, what is the law and jurisdiction of the contract, because not all jurisdictions uh, recognise it. And, and I, was, I was interested to see actually how many countries it hasn't been tested in, how many uh, court systems actually knock-for-knock liability hasn't been tested, so there isn't much jurisprudence on it. But for example, we had a, a recent claim where a surveyor uh, hydrographic surveyor was on board a vessel and they, and they damaged some property on board that vessel. And they had agreed not for not liability in the contract, but it was actually an Italian company they'd uh, entered the agreement with, an English firm and an Italian uh, principal. And we tried to enforce knock for knock regime there, but it was found to be not applicable or accepted because under Italian law, and um, the knock for knock clause has to be specifically approved by the contracting parties. And so basically, that would be in, um, uh, evidenced by maybe a uh, signature next to the, the actual knock for knock liability regime. So you need to consider the law and jurisdiction when entering to these. And, and also, Germany as well can, can be difficult to get these sort of exclusions in. So again, be wary when dealing with jurisdictions outside the UK and, and seek local advice, local legal advice on, 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 on what the ramifications are. I think that's I think that's sound advice, and it, it is also explains why you still need third-party liability cover, it, it, even if you have a knock-for-knock clause in your agreement, because there will be instances where the knock-for-knock agreement hasn't worked for whatever reason, and provided it's in a standard, you've, you have it in a standard form, your insurance shouldn't be prejudiced, and you'll have to look then to your own third-party liability insurers. Uh, so uh, any contractual term is, is only worth the papers printed on. There's always a litigation risk of enforcing a uh, contractual term, and, and the success of whether that will happen, there's always um, litigation uncertainty. I think, I think that's right, and I was just going to say, as I sort of final comment as well in terms of uncertainty. You can have the knock-for-knock provision in the standard pro forma part of a contract, but if you're having rider clauses in addition, then you must make it clear that you're not disturbing the knock-for-knock regime that you've carefully negotiated. Because if you you include a provision which is inconsistent with the knock-for-knock provision 
then the fact that it's in a rider clause may mean that it prevails uh, over the knock for knock. So just be wary when drafting rider clauses that you're, you're not inadvertently overriding the knock for knock provision. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Daryl. I mean, I mean, my, my takeaway from, from this speaking to you is basically be wary of any changes to the standard not for not liability regime and potentially if, if you are requested to make changes a seek uh, legal advice or um, or be be prepared to walk away from the uh, contract I think I think that's a very sound takeaway and I think I'd probably just add something else at the risk of sounding self-serving I would also say make your contract subject to English law and London jurisdiction because you know it's enforceable here whereas if you, you gave two examples earlier of Italian and, and German law there's almost no point in you having kind of learned the lesson and then make it subject to another law where you you have don't have that certainty that's going to apply great that's a very good point. Well, thank you very much, Daryl. It was good to speak to you again and hopefully uh, be in touch again soon. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Itic Insight. We hope you found this edition interesting and informative. To ensure you never miss an episode, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and wherever you get your podcasts.